Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, July 3rd, and this is the weekly market update. This video is a little bit late today. It was pretty busy. Uh, I've been working some Saturdays on my primary job, but uh, we want to maintain the consistency. I know a lot of people wait on these videos. They really enjoy them. So I want to make sure we get it going, get it out. Just want to wish everybody a happy 4th of July tomorrow holiday. I know a lot of people are celebrating it Monday. Enjoy the long weekend. We're getting into the summer. One thing I will mention just as we, uh, well, let's go ahead and do the disclaimer. This is not investment advice. Anything you hear on this podcast or this video is not to be taken as investment or financial advice. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. So like I was saying, um, things are looking pretty good in the oil markets. Um, we've got WTI up around $74, $75 a barrel, something like that. Uh, we should start seeing the second quarter earnings come in. Uh, we were at fairly high oil levels we were during the quarter. So we should see some really nice cash flow announcements, further improving balance sheets, maybe some more announcements of you know, buybacks, things like that. So I don't think this is a trend that's going away. I'm just seeing a lot of people traveling. This is what we thought would happen based on some of the people that I follow. I mean, China's definitely back to it's in pre-COVID demand. India's just about there. Um, the whole Delta thing just kind of evaporated there. If you go and check the uh, case count, it just collapsed. So things are going to start improving there. Things are going to improve in Europe. I just saw there was a deal made between Germany and the UK to allow travel between the countries. So most of your petrochemicals and gasoline and distillate supplies are improving. And so one of the last things that will need to improve, I think, will be the passenger air travel. So um, I think we're looking pretty good in our forecast that we thought the summer uh, would really spike prices. And we're, we've kind of you know, I'm not going to forecast prices. We're pretty much at the price target that I thought we would get to by the end of the year. So anything above this would at this point be gravy for us. But uh, it's definitely looking good. And, you know, going out a few years, uh, like I said, we are looking at an energy crisis because of the underinvestment. So everything is not hitting necessarily on eight cylinders, but we're on seven cylinders and tuning the eight cylinders. So we're getting close for this thing to really be going in our direction. Okay, let's get into the update. So I'm not going to burden you with any more, uh, well, at least this week, discussion on uh, some of the other non-financial items. This was so interesting, I just wanted to bring it to your attention because this is a major problem for a lot of people. One of the things that I talk about as to why investors are not successful longer term is because their expectations are out of whack with reality or the historical norms. What do I mean? Let's look at this chart. So investor, investors expect higher returns than financial professionals, professionals say are realistic. I've talked about this off and on, but I really wanna kind of delve into this a little bit deeper. Let's just look at here, global average expectations. So this is a global um, expectations of investors. They, people, that were 
that individual investors, this is like retail investors, this isn't like professionals, um, on the global averages, they expect 14.5% returns above inflation every year over the next 10 years. That's crazy. Um, that's not going to happen. And it's interesting that financial professionals uh, are only expecting 5.3%. That's more realistic. Uh, it's even worse in the U.S. You know, the average investor here in the U.S. expects a 17.5% return every year going forward for the next 10 years. That's not going to happen. We're at excessive valuations. I shouldn't say it's not going to happen because nothing's certain. Uh, anything is possible, I, I suppose. But when you're at historical valuations, just about measured by any metric, the idea that you have an expectation that you're going to get 17.5% a year compounded over the next 10 years, that's crazy. That's something that you would normally see at the beginning of a bull market coming off a massive bear market. You know, if you look at like what Jeremy Grantham has been saying, and I, I talked about this in one of the videos several months ago, in the work that they do at GMO, they do this forecasting based on valuations. And, and, and basically, what you're looking at over the next 10 years with the valuation levels we're at at the US is basically, you know, zero or slightly negative annual returns for US stocks. That's because they're so overvalued. You know, the other thing that strikes me is, is that, you know, the average, if you put your money, let's say 50 years ago, into an S&P index fund, for example, and just left it there and it reinvested the dividends, your average return would be about 9% a year with dividends reinvested. And uh, that would be doing nothing. That's just the average of the S&P. And most investors underperform that. Most individual investors cannot beat the S&P average. Let me say that again. Most investors cannot consistently beat the S&P average. Just putting their money in to an index fund with low costs and just leaving it there is better is the best course of action for most people, but they don't do it because they think that they can beat the market. They may be like, you see this among a lot of professional people that are very successful, like doctors or lawyers that are successful in their particular trade, but other people are the same way. And so they're what I call idiot savants in their particular field, and they believe that that will translate into another field. Uh, that may be, you know, interesting if you are a successful heart surgeon and you want to dabble in cabinet making in your garage and you know the products that you make don't come out but but it gave you relaxation you know when we're talking about investing we're dealing with real money here and he said this has real consequences so you know let's extrapolate that even further let's go into this further it's amusing to me that, and I used to be the same way. I used to have these unrealistic expectations. This is one of the major downfalls of a lot of investors, these unrealistic expectations. And like I said, I wasn't immune from that until I read history. This is why you need to read. This is why I talk about, you know, if I, I'm, I, I like the Charlie Munger quote, you know, he never, he said he never met a successful man that wasn't, a, didn't read a lot. And that makes sense if you think about it, because you just don't know history. You don't know what happened before you. And so you have these views that are um, not consistent with the way things really are. And uh, that's unfortunate. And so if you look at like Berkshire Hathaway, like I've 
said many, many times, you can go to the Berkshire Hathaway website to the investor page, look up any of the annual reports, and they will list in the front couple pages of the report, they show all of their returns over the last, since the inception of the uh, partnership or inception of Berkshire Hathaway. And if you take all of Warren Buffett's and Charlie Munger's activities and average it out, they basically average through the up and down years, 20% a year. Now these guys are acknowledged as some of the best investors of all time, and they average 20% a year. And yet you have people thinking that they're going to, the average retail investor in the US thinks he's gonna get 17.5% a year over the next 10 years. And he doesn't have a clue what he's doing. He has no experience. He doesn't know. He doesn't know where he's at in the cycle. He doesn't understand evaluations, how to evaluate the historical, um, uh, where you're at in, in, in the cycle, what's realistic. And it's just, it's, it's kind of amusing, but it's actually sad also because people are going to be disappointed in the returns that they get because uh, they are not going to get 17.5% a year. And we've been spoiled, right? You've had this Federal Reserve. It kind of goes back to that. You've had so much liquidity, so much easy money. It's really blown um, asset prices up. I mean, I'm reading a one of the fund letters that I follow. I follow various funds. I like to read their investor letters and their reports. And the guy was talking about in Florida, this particular fund manager lives in Florida, and he was talking about the community he lived in and the, how the real estate prices have exploded. And he showed some examples of some homes, you know, and what they've sold at recently and what they've sold for, you know, even five or seven years ago. And some of these, you know, there was a lot that was across the street from the beach. It wasn't even on the beach. You could have, and I forget the locale, somewhere between St. Augustine and Jacksonville. I can't remember the name of the town, beach town. And there's a lot of big houses there. So this lot, I think like 10 years ago, sold for like a half a million. The thing's going for like $5 million now. You just have facilitated bubbles in everything and stocks are no different. So what it has done is skewed people's expectations that this is normal and it's not. You know, I don't like to try to make market predictions. All I can say is that things are overvalued and I believe that you should sell overvaluation and buy undervaluation. There are undervalued things in this market but there are also undervalued markets around the world. Make the world your oyster. Sell overvaluation and buy undervaluation. That has shown that over time you will do better. Now, you're not gonna be able to go to, you know, people like to talk about, you know, I made a thousand percent or I made all this money on, you know, whatever crap coin they're talking about, or, you know, the guy that bought Tesla and held it. You know, these people are lucky. I've said it before, these people are not investors. They don't know what they're doing. You walk down the street and you find a diamond rig in the, in the gutter and you pick it up. You, now you're an investor because it's worth $20,000. You're not an investor. You got lucky. And, that, and that's, uh, that's not to besmirch anybody. That's not to take away, but you're not an investor. You're not a competent person. You got lucky. You were in the right place at the right time. Now you're an investor. It's, it's not how it is. So people are going to do what they do. Uh, people aren't going to listen to most people. This is not new. This is happened many times. You can read. That's why it's important to read financial history and all history because human nature does not change. It's the same. The same motivations that motivated people back in previous bubbles going all the way back to the South Seas bubble. The greed, the fear of missing out, all that stuff worked then just like it works now. 
So I wanted to really bring this to your attention because I think it's really interesting. And I hope that you're not falling into some of these expectations. You really should understand financial history and what real, you have to have real, real um, realistic expectations of what returns are. If you're going to, you know, if you can average nine or 10%, let's just say 10% to round it off. And you can do slightly better than an index fund. You can get very wealthy over a period of time doing that. I mean, you see what happened to Buffett and, in Berkshire Hathaway. And it was because of the compounding over time and buying things when they were cheap and holding the powder and holding through all the ups and downs that they averaged that 20%. But when you compound at 20% for 40 plus years, you start talking about astronomical amounts of money. The problem is, is that people want to get rich fast. That's always been people's downfall when they get into investing. They want to get rich fast. It's, you cannot do that. It's just people get lucky. Like I said, they find $1,000 bills in the gutter or they find a diamond ring in the gutter or they buy something and they happen to be in the middle of a liquidity uh, Lollapalooza like we're in now with the Fed over the last decade or more. And they equate that with them being, you know, like they know what they're doing. Don't make that mistake. Okay, so here's something else that I found interesting this week. ESG, the new money heist. You know, the people on Wall Street that create these various ETFs and products, they're not doing it so you can make money. They don't care if you make money. If you make money, that's secondary to what, why they're doing this. They create products and they market them to you, to investors, so that they can get fees, uh, they can get assets under management, cream off management fees, and all kinds of different other fees. And that's what they're in the business of doing, making the pool of capital that they control or that they're managing, I say that in italics, as big as possible, and then creaming off you know, a percent here and a 2% there. That's the game. That's the whole basis of money management. And so what do we have here? The new fad, the new zeitgeist, as I've said, the new fashionable thing to talk about is ESG. Let's get into it. Articles, all articles that I uh, get these uh, slides from, I'll try, I try to put them in the show notes if you're interested in reading more or know where they came from. Wall Street is once again in the midst of a money heist from naive investors, this time in the form of woke activism called ESG. In the late 1990s, there was a significant movement by Wall Street to limit investing in sin stocks, such as gambling, tobacco, etc. Just as it was then, investors initially jumped on board. But when returns failed to match the S&P index, that fad died away. And, and the article goes on to talk about uh, what, what's, why this is a fad and, and, and what, what's really going on. There are currently no universal rules to analyze ESG risks nor are there any clear frameworks to police ESG-labeled investment products, as EcoBusiness recently noted. For example, deforestation is a major driver of climate change. You would think it's being used as a filter to ensure companies and ESG-labeled funds are not turning a blind eye to deforestation, but you would be wrong. Carbon Tracker, an industry think tank, found that 78% of mutual fund providers offered ESG investments, However, none specifically excluded deforestation risk, not a single one active, actively priced climate risk either. So again, this is what happens. We've talked about this before. When a certain sector gets hot, uh, I've talked about this before, the, the, they have a saying in Canada 
especially on the Venture Exchange in Vancouver and in Toronto on Bay Street. And what they say is, when the ducks quack, feed them. And they're talking about you, the retail investor. So when a certain sector in the resource market becomes hot, for example, you will see them start creating companies like uranium. Now you will see at the top of the, you know, at the top of the last market, we've talked about this before, uh, the start of the previous bull market in uranium, there were two or three publicly traded uranium companies because there were only a few competent uranium teams in the world. But at the height of the, of the uranium bull market, there were over like 400, there were close to four, there were over 400, close to 500 listed uranium companies. This is what they do. If something becomes popular, they issue shares, they create ETFs, whatever. This is usually a sign that you're at a top. Conversely, if you want a, another indicator when you should buy, you will see that the fund companies will get rid of ETFs, uh, near the bottom of a market. Like there's no longer a shipping ETF. They got rid of it. They got rid of the coal ETF because why, why there's no interest at them in the bottom. Nobody puts money at them in the bottom. You know, when these things bottom out, no one's interested. Everybody sold. So there's no, there's no pool of capital to cream fees off. So it's cost more to run the thing and there's no interest. So they close it down. And that's just another one of these indicators I use to determine when something is a buy, you know, the coal ETF, I think, got closed like a year and a half or two years ago. That's when you should have been buying coal. And what are we seeing now? It, it came back. You had to sit on your leather duff and grind it out for a year and a half, two years. But, you know, eventually these things turn. So they had a slide there that I wanted to show you. So you have two funds here. They gave an example. One is an S&P index fund right? Because a lot of these companies you see are very big companies and they are in the S&P 500. The other one is an ESG fund. If you look at them closely, you will notice that mo mo they share the top 10 hopefully the same with a few exceptions. So you're buying an ESG, I say that in a tell, fund, but you're basically just buying an S&P index fund. Well, you can buy an S&P index fund from, from Vanguard for like, you know, three basis points, very little low fees, almost zero. Why would you pay up to buy an S&P index fund that claims throws an ESG label on it? But that's how naive and stupid people are. And that's what Wall Street counts on. People being naive and stupid and creaming off fees, creaming off money from investors. That's what they're all about. That's why they exist. So I'll put a link to that article. You should read it. It's pretty interesting. And this will never stop. I mean, they're not going to stop these people. The SEC isn't going to get in there. Like I said, there's no angels that these are, you know, if the SEC was doing their job, why wouldn't they say, well, if you're going to claim you're an ESG, there should be a standard to compare it to. What does that really mean? Well, they get to quantify that. No one makes them quantify that. They just throw these labels on it and then people buy them. And, you know, they don't know what they're buying. The average person doesn't, you know, spends more time, you know, investigating what car they're going to buy than they, than what stocks they buy. We know this. This is another reason why they fail. So I wanted to talk about this. Um, this is interesting because it kind of goes into the ESG thing, but it also was kind of interesting. I don't know if it's actually accurate or not, but allegedly <clears throat> the Nigerians uh, stumbled on a, or, or, accidentally found a 206 trillion cubic feet discovery of natural gas that they didn't know was there before, evidently. I don't know the whole story. That's just what I saw reported. And so 
I don't know if it's that big. I don't know what, what the whole story is, but what's interesting about it is it kind of ties back into what I want to talk about on this slide. And it is, you know, if you find that level amount of natural gas, I mean, you have electric electricity deficiencies, cooking fuel deficiencies in Nigeria and these places, and then you find a resource that big. And then you have the Western countries telling you that you should just, you know, strand that resource in the ground and not use it. And you should just build renewables. Ain't going to happen. I've been saying that all along. We see it in coal. We're going to see it in natural gas. These countries that are very popul populous, they're not going to, they can't, they don't have the money, they don't have the, the wealth to uh, play around with renewables. If you have a cheap, readily available source of power or fuel, i.e. natural gas to this level, I think a gas find that big would supply the entire planet for 40 years or something like that, something crazy like that I read. But regardless, let's, let's see what, what the Nigerians are saying. The belief in the industry is that we have this kind of vast resource and we have not tapped it. Why should we abandon it and move to renewables? This is kind of what the Indian Minister of Energy said, quote, we have not used gas to drive our cars and few people use it to cook. We have not used gas to generate electricity or use it to fire our fertilizer blending plants. Then why should we abandon it and move to renewables? Quote, what, are, what we are saying is that the Western countries are in a position to move to renewables after using coal and crude oil to stabilize the electricity in their areas, and, the, and everybody there enjoys it. But we have a situation in Nigeria where a lot of people do not have access to electricity yet. So what are we saying is that, so what we are saying is that we agree to transit, but let us use our gas first to develop our country and get the benefits of development that point where everybody has electricity, then we can transit to renewable fuel. So this is what we've heard said before. These countries, look, you're not going to run a modern country on renewables. I mean, if you think that, you're just dumb at this point. You don't, you, you're just not, you just, I'm, not, I'm just going to say it. You're not going to run a, a lot. Yeah, you can run Costa Rica or Nicaragua or Denmark where they're importing stuff, hydroelectric from Norway. That's, those are one-offs, so don't ankle bite. You're not going to run China or India or the United States on 100% renewables. It is never going to happen. It's not physically possible. You don't understand math and engineering if you make statements like that. And so the Nigerians are living in reality. Go look up uh, on YouTube, Lagos, Nigeria. There's people that drive around into the areas. You see garbage all over the place. People don't have electricity. People use animal dung and wood and garbage to heat or to cook their food. I mean, if you haven't been to a third world country, you have no clue what you're talking about. And so if these people have this resource, why are you entitled to enjoy the benefits of the legacy of fo that fossil fuels provided, but they're not? They don't see it the way, you don't understand your argument that you're making if you're making that argument. And that's just that simple. Now, I guess if the Western people in the West said, we want you to stick that in place and we'll fund the entirety of your transition to renewables. There ain't enough money on, <laughs> there ain't enough money anywhere to do that. So what you're going to see is the point I'm trying to make here is that these, th there may be a transition. This is just another brick in the wall. Why ain't going to happen in any time, any quick amount of time. These people need to develop. They want to develop. They have a mandate from their people to develop. And they're not going to go, go on, you know, the record in their country and say, we have this resource that could basically fuel the entire planet for decades. 
And oh, by the way, we're going to abandon it because some neurotic white liberal woman in California uh, doesn't think we should uh, use it. It ain't going to happen. <laughs> it's just that simple. Get used to it. If you don't believe me, fly over there and uh, make your point and see what happens. Wanted to point this out. Uh, you know, I follow a special service with commentary about crops and uh, I see all the weather stuff and the crop reports. And I'm getting more and more concerned about the food situation in the world. You know, I've said this before, uh, we have quite a bit, we've been spoiled by having quite a bit you know, of great growing conditions and high yields has been enabled by the warming that we have been in. But I believe that's going to change. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we've seen now crop failures around the world. Uh, some areas, you know, are doing well. I think Ukraine, you know, 10 years ago or 12 years ago, I think, you know, their grain crop was like 10 million bushels. They're, they're going to probably crack 100 million bushels. So there are places where things are expanding. You're going to see, you know, things happen. But right now you have massive drought going on in the Western United States. You have drought going on. Uh, you had droughts in Brazil this year. You had, you know, we know what happened in China. They had too much rain. So the the time of optimum growing conditions, we may be going through a period where we don't have optimum conditions and we've been spoiled by that. And it's going to manifest itself in higher prices. So what we're seeing is, you know, U.S. fertilizer requirements reach decade high. U.S. fertilizer requirements this year are poised to reach the highest in at least a decade on higher 2021 crop acreage estimates. At least 1.5 million acre increased in corn. And there was another, I'll put a link to it. So basically, you know, as you bring more marginal land in to take advantage of the prices, because what, you know, one of the, that's why it's very difficult to kind of trade these markets in agriculture successfully, because, you know, in one year, it takes, you know, a decade to bring on a mine. But, you know, if you have, you know, 15 or $16 soybeans, everybody's going to plant soybeans. If you have seven to $8 corn, everybody's going to plant corn. They'll just dump more inputs into marginal land they have and try to extract more. I mean, what I'm trying to tell you is these things respond to price. And so uh, fertilizer is another sector that has been decimated because of overcapacity that was put on it decades ago and that's been worked off. And now we're in a situation where we're starting to see fertilizer prices go up. And we're starting to see probably, you know, more need for more fertilizer. That's the point. I wanted to throw this up here, electricity disruptions this summer. This is um, from the EIA. That's a U.S. Uh, energy uh, inf information agency. It's a U.S. government. Uh, I'll, put, I'll put an article. Uh, there's a link to the article. I just want to pull this chart off. This is the U.S. energy emergency risk areas for this summer. And you can see that like California is very high risk, obviously, of blackouts and rolling, you know, uh, brownouts. But look at the rest of the country. I mean, you have more and more areas, it seems, that are now susceptible, you have elevated risk. Is this a first world country? Do, you know, the things that happened in Texas this last winter, are these indications of a first world power grid? I mean, these are the things I saw when I was in third world countries where the power goes out. And, you know, people in businesses are hurt. You know, when the power went out down here in the wintertime, people died. And now you have situations. I mean, how do you run a modern economy if you have these high risks of, you know, disruptions? And what is being done about it? Well, in California, they're banning natural gas. They're closing down natural gas plants. They're going to close down 
one of the, I think one of their last nuclear plants and, you know, build more renewables. That seems to be the plan. I suggest to you that it probably won't be successful. So you're going to have high energy costs and more disruptions. That's just what you're going to have. And I'm hopeful that at some point, the cost and the inconvenience and the decline, I mean, is this, is this going to change? I don't know. Are people going to get sick of this and finally demand that people, at least legislators, change their views? Or are they just going to continue down the path of, you know, this nuttiness and, and making the country less competitive and making people's life less rich and less fulfilling because, you know, you're sitting down here and um, let me tell you something, when it gets, you know, 95 degrees where I'm at here in Houston right now, and the heat index is 111 and you don't have air conditioning, you, you just standing outside, you sweat without even doing any work. And I was doing work this week and it was fully saturated through my shirt to my jeans and everything. It was horrible. And you have to get that relief. I mean, you can very easily become a heat stress casualty. And then once you have a heat, heat stress situation, you're more susceptible in the future. You can die from that. You can get heat stroke and die. And so, you know, why is it like this? Why, I'm not blaming it on uh, renewals, but this is not indicative of a first world country that's, you know, a leader of the world where we have almost half the country is susceptible to emergency blackouts. It has elevated risks of blackouts. Stupid. And what's being done about it? Anything? Who knows? I would suggest to you that this will be uh, an investment theme. It will be actionable over time. So wanted to point this out. Unrelenting cold demand poses challenges to climate goals. And, you know, forget about the climate goals. This is another reason. The coal is there. The demand for power is high in these places. They're going to burn coal. It's just that simple. Natural gas, we, we talked about it last week. There's shortages, literally. Coal prices across Asia are surging to records, underscoring a challenge for governments seeking a faster energy transition. The dirtiest of fuels they're racing to phase out is enjoying booming demand. So coal's enjoying booming demand. Well, good for us because we're in coal stocks. Heads we win, tails we win more. Power plants are rushing to secure adequate electricity supplies as a hot summer adds to demand from the regions. This is in Asia now from the region's post-pandemic industrial revival. Just what we said was going to happen, folks. On top of that, output in some key producer nations has been hurt, while high natural gas costs mean there's no cheaper alternative for utilities to turn to. The price of physical coal car cargoes in Australia's Newcastle and China's, I can't even pronounce this word, ports, have soared more than 50% this year to their highest ever Futures are also up with those in Australia jumping almost 50% and prices in China more than doubling. So, you know, if you're going to go, you know, there's opportunities, even if you believe that these fossil fuels are going away and they're strangling, they're doing everything they can with these first world countries, OECD countries, the US, Europe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they're doing everything they can to strangle the fossil fuel industry and you have the majority of the world's population that's trying to better their lives. It's going to be a clash of visions. It's going to be a problem. What's going to happen? It's going to cause volatility in pricing for fuels, probably to the upside. That's actionable, and we have action, we have action on it in the portfolio. Saw this chart. I just wanted to throw it up here. You know, electric cars, they don't make sense. 
I mean, the average person isn't going to afford them. They don't have the range. It's a pain in the butt to, 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 to um, charge them right now. That's as of now. Maybe that will change. I've been of the opinion that the only way you're going to have a mass adoption of these things is if the government, by force, using its monopoly on violence, does things like they do in some of these European countries and what they're do, talking about doing in some states in the U.S. or have already done. It's just we're banning internal combustion engines as of this date. So you create an artificial demand, and then they're going to subsidize it. But is that the acts of a first world country? How productive is that? You know, when you, this, these are all parasitical uh, elements that you're just piling on. Um, it's not the best way, you know, the technology is not that good. And then the ankle biter will come in and say, well, batteries, well, batteries are not microchips. Moore's law does not apply to batteries. They've been working on batter, trying to get battery technology better and better for years. They've made incremental demand, but you're not going to see the, the kind of success that you've seen with microchips, at least in any time frame that matters to us as investors. You know, I never want to say never, but right now I don't see anything. And to go from lab, you'll read, you'll read something in a, in a, um, blog or well they they're they're working on this breakthrough at MIT or whatever well how long does it take to go from the breakthrough at MIT in the lab to production and in use 10 20 30 years i don't know so i just thought this was interesting because you know i think there's you know tens of millions of car i don't know how many cars a year are sold in the us like 15 million something like that 12 or 15 million this is what we're dealing with here i mean i'm not uh, i wouldn't sell my old stocks yet I know people, some people might be getting uh, sick of me talking about Uzbekistan and some of these other, but I've been asked, you know, a lot of people have asked me, what else are you doing? What, this, this is an investment. This is a coffee can portfolio constituent of mine. Um, just for an example, I got the report from the Uzbekistan fund and it was, I believe the 14th month and we've had positive results. Now we're only up a half a percent the last month, but still 14 month streak is intact of positive gains in the fund. So and the news, of course, continues to get better there. And I wanted to sh uh, show you this article, which was in Forbes magazine. It only had like 1,500 views on the online Forbes magazine. It, it's still unknown place. It's still tremendous opportunity. No one knows about the place. No one cares about it. I mean, like I said, they only had 1,500 views of this particular article. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but a couple blurbs from the article. Under President Shavkat Mirza Yaev, Market liberalism and political openness became the new orthodoxy, slowly but surely. The economy started to privatize. Civil, civil society reforms took root. Frontier market bond investors bought in. Private funds were created to capitalize on a country that, once historically isolated, now thinks it can leapfrog 30 years of the post-Soviet past. For many developing countries, follow the trajectory of transition from... For many developing countries follow the trajectory of transition from resources-based economy to a manufacturing services and high-tech powerhouses. In the past, the state had a chokehold on the economy, Soviet style. Currency wasn't convertible. All of this changed with a new president and government in 2016. Taxes were cut. A new currency regime took place that looked more like every other emerging market with an inflation targeting central bank. Uzbekistan is slated to sell fully or in part some 620 of the country's 2,500 state-owned companies per a 2020 executive order. Today, state-owned enterprises run 55% of Uzbekistan's economy compared to 11% here in the U.S. So the article is pretty long. It goes into some other things. 
Is it all Shangri-La? Is it all lollipops, um, you know, ponies and little kids? No, uh, they have, they're ranking very high on the corruption index. They're not, uh, it's very, they're not making a lot of progress there. They're trying to make changes, but that's a, that's a, that's a problem. But, you know, the president is, you know, up for election. He's running on this, you know, continuing of these policies that appear to be benefiting everybody. The reports that I get, the news that I follow, you can go on Telegram if you have a Telegram account and there's a, um, one of the brokerages there, a Vesta bank, I think it's called. I follow them and every day you'll see the news. I mean, $250 million from the European bank for redevelopment for new transmission lines, 50 million investment from this Russian company to create these hypermarts. Uh, 200 million from the Kuwaiti investment fund for this. I mean, money is pouring into the place and it's, it, the place is on fire. And uh, as long as these initiatives take place, this is what they want to do. They don't want to go through this thing like Singapore or Malaysia, where it took 30 years to go from, you know, backwater to, you know, this emerging market. They want to leapfrog that as fast as they can. And they're, you know, trying to do a high tech thing. They're perfectly situated right there in Central Asia, right where that Chinese uh, Scott Osheroff and I were talking. He's the he's the chief investment officer. He kind of equates this like crescent that comes out of China, goes through Central Asia, where there's a lot of resources, through northern Iran, up through Turkey, and into Europe. And that crescent of you know um, energy, agriculture, and emerging manufacturing and resource base is uh, is going to be the future. This whole area has been mired in backwardness for a long time and it's now emerging all those areas are emerging they're coming they're coming to fruition they're cutting deals they see what asia did uh the frontier markets in asia that we've talked about and they want to emulate that and get there so what i'm trying to say is this is something that you buy into and you hold for 10 years and i think you do very well the, the problem is is how do you get exposure you know the fund that i'm in uh you know i'm not Full disclosure: I own I own a good a good chunk for my portfolio, but it's a twenty five thousand dollar minimum. You could get on a plane and go there. You can contact a Vesta group and see if you can open a brokerage account. There's all kinds of things if you want to do it. You just have to be creative, um, you know. And if I was like twenty two or twenty three and didn't have anything going here, get on a plane and go to Tashkent and see what they need there and see if you could get something going. I mean, that's how you make real wealth. You know, I'm in my mid fifties. It's not really something I can do right now because of other things I have to do. But if I was in my 20s, I would be going to Africa or Central Asia. That's where things are going to be happening over the next 20 or 30 years. So they certainly wouldn't be sitting around in the declining West with poor demographics, over indebtedness, and, you know, a lot of turmoil looking into the future. So I just wanted to bring this to your attention. Uh, I talk about a lot, but I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, the stock that I'm going to highlight in this month's actionable intelligence alert is a stock that I've owned for many years. It got really killed because of the commodity bear market. It's coming back and it has a couple of unique twists on it that I believe are make it. Um, it's basically a situation where I'm buying a dollar for 50 cents or 60 cents, but it has a unique twist and some catalysts I think that aren't being considered. And it's in a, it's in a uh, Asian market that's uh, been neglected for a while. So if you're interested, take a look at that um, if you have a subscription. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, appreciate the support. Uh, like I said, have a happy holiday. Uh, like I said, we're in the summer now. Expect some summer doldrums. You know, we had the big running commodities and value stocks, and it kind of petered out. But we're going to have a lot of volatility in these things. You know, um, 
we had the big pullback after the Fed announcement and, you know, it kind of saw a lot of rotation back to the so-called growth stocks. But I think we're going to have a lot of volatility over this decade, but I think um, that we're really going to see commodities and value stocks do well in a lot of these emerging markets. Uh, that's my belief. And I, and I still believe that, but the volatility will be there. You have to be cognizant of it and you have to understand that you're going to, you know, a lot of people saw that in uranium recently, you know, a lot of the uranium stocks are off 30% or more and people are, is this the end? Uh, you know, they're rubbing their hands together. Oh, you know, that's what happens when you don't get in with tranches or you don't get in early enough. I'm in so early that, you know, this is nothing. It's just, uh, it's, you're going to look back 10 years from now or five years from now after this bull market's over, this current bull market that we're in in uranium stocks and the current 30% or whatever decline, you won't even be able to hardly see it on the chart. But if you just bought in, 30% is a big deal, right? Your 10,000 is now, you know, 7,000 or whatever. And now you need a, um, you need a pretty big gain to get back to even. If you're, if you're of the view though, that it's a bull market and you've came in with your initial tranche, then you buy another tranche because nothing fundamentally has changed. As a matter of fact, they just turned on another reactor in Japan that had been offline for, for many years. So you just have catalyst after catalyst uh, and you know, these, these things take time. So uh, you buy in a bull market, you buy the dips. So that's my advice. All right, guys, appreciate it. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks.